If you feel insignificant, you better think again. Better wake up because you're part of something way bigger. Sings Beyonce in her song Bigger. It seems to me like everybody is looking for it. We are all part of something much, much bigger. The purpose. Rolf Dobelli, the author of the book The Art of Good Life, he is originally from Switzerland and the book was written in 2017 or 2018. Well, anyways, he says that looking for purpose and deeper meaning in our lives is completely worthless. He also claims that it only leads to never-ending cycle of questions with no answers. Well, I don't know how about you, but I can definitely relate on the personal level. Because if I accidentally get into a very existential mood asking myself who I am and where I'm going, where I'm leading, it usually gets super depressing. Why is it though then that everywhere we look, individuals, celebrities and brands all stand for something? Seems like they have their purpose all figured out. It might all just come down to the age we live in, it's uber expressive. With 6000 tweets posted every minute, we can safely say that people like to share, like and comment. A very interesting German study found out in 2013 that these very actions, the like, share and comment on social media and the notifications as well, stimulate the same part of our brain as cocaine does. So there you have it, the addiction is born. I'd like to refer you to a really interesting documentary which dropped on Netflix only recently in September. It's called The Social Dilemma. It's a really interesting movie that explains all about how these addictions are created in our brains and the people that stand behind them. Maybe because of all this constant sharing, we created a need to express where we stand on important social issues because hashtag silence is ignorance, right? We all want to seem like we care, like these issues concern us and we are actively directly invested in them. No wonder that companies and brands are all jumping on the bandwagon. They are only responding to what people are interested in anyways. Usually it works out for them, but sometimes, well, it goes the wrong way. Welcome to our podcast, where we talk about topics that move the society today and shake up the entertainment and pop culture industry. My name is Jake Bartonus and I invite you to give a fuck about the purpose of purpose. Give a fuck. Before we look deeper into what brands are doing right or what they are doing wrong regarding advertising their purpose, we have to make one major differentiation. And that is that there is an inherent difference in how companies approach this issue. We can separate them into three groups. Firstly, the purpose can really be the brand itself. Companies like UNICEF, WWF, Amnesty International, various NGOs, non-for-profits and charities. They still create quite a big amount of communications, many times with the goal of raising funds and drawing attention to social and economical issues or injustice. They rely a lot on generating buzz and PR. Secondly, purpose can be a defining driver for the brand, deeply embedded in the DNA of the business. Imagine companies like Lush, 
Patagonia, Dom's Shoes or True Fruits. Their sole existence is defined by their purpose. They grow pretty quickly, people love them, identify with them, and they become the ultimate symbol of somebody's identity. Lastly, the most common kind is using purpose as a campaign driver. We see this done a lot, almost daily. It's McDonald's creating campaigns celebrating International Women's Day or Aldi saying hashtag thank you to all essential workers during Corona lockdown. But this is where it can get a little tricky. It is extremely important to be wary of the thin line between purpose and purpose washing. Nowadays, brands haphazardly, almost blindly choose what they believe is their purpose and quickly glue together an emotional short film. Sometimes it can work wonders, when done correctly, like in the Nike's Believe in Something campaign film. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. But sometimes you might just ask yourself, why does a Dodge Ram truck commercial really need an audio track of Martin Luther Jr. speech? You want to be important? Wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. And as a result, the work can come out manufactured and inauthentic. As we know, today's customers, especially millennials, value authenticity about anything else. Once they smell something is fishy, you'll get cancelled. Within a matter of minutes, one tweet can literally ruin you. Look at what happened to Oatly recently. Everybody used to love Oatly. It was the first of its kind, a funny milk alternative made out of oats. Until we found out that they accepted money from the same donors that also supported Trump campaign. We need money. Now Oatly is cancelled and nobody wants to buy it anymore. Or look at what happened to Mulan movie, the new Disney live action version. The main actress of the movie expressed sympathy with Hong Kong police in the ongoing protests. It is such a sensitive issue over there that people in Hong Kong, Taiwan and other Asian countries as well decided to boycott the movie which led to a really low opening weekend for Mulan in Asia. As corny as it sounds, it seems like the time is now. The corona situation definitely served as a catalyst. In times like these, when toilet paper has become the single biggest commodity, there is an opportunity for many marketeers to use it as the platform. And rightfully so. Since 55% of consumers believe that companies have a bigger role than government in shaping better future. Give a fuck. We decided to talk to people that are the best to talk about this kind of thing. People that actually worked on purpose projects. Let's start with one of the most meaningful purpose-driven campaigns of all. One that not only earned many of the most prestigious awards such as DNA's Black Pencil, Grand Prix at Cannes Lion and many others, but also has raised the bar as one of the most ambitious, aspirational and truly effective purpose campaign. That's right. I'm talking about the Palau Pledge. Here's Laura Clark, who is one of the co-founders of the Palau Legacy Project, to tell us more and in depth about this initiative. The Palau Pledge originated, or it was born out of, uh, a need for the Republic of Palau, which is uh, in the Pacific Ocean between the Philippines and Guam. It was born out of the need to protect their sort of precious environment and culture. I arrived in Palau in 2015 and I have a communications background, agency and client side, 
and I was actually meant to be living there on holiday really with my husband who was working and before we left for Palau I'd done quite a lot of research into their incredible amazing culture and they have a philosophy of conservation which is very rare these days um, as a people you know the inheritance that they pass on to the next generation is not about money it's never been about money it's always been about passing on a healthy ocean and a healthy land for the next generation to thrive and so they have various laws in place in order to support their culture so if you think about it their culture really does preserve the environment and when i arrived in 2015 um, it was very interesting because the demographic of visitors shifted slightly and um, Palau started to see charter flights arriving um, from developing markets and bringing visitors really who had never interacted with a marine environment let alone a fragile one in fact a lot of these visitors that hadn't even seen the ocean before and so they went from 60 to 80,000 visitors in 2014, 80,000 to 160,000 in 2015. And, and so Palau and Palauans started to see a lot of behavior change in their visitors from sort of conscientious interaction with this pristine environment to people that just didn't know what to do. And so there was a lot of um, things like throwing trash in the ocean, um, you know, stepping on coral, which takes hundreds of years to grow back, throwing cigarette butts in the ocean, which are toxic uh, to the marine environment, um, even to the point where they were taking um, you know, small fish out of the ocean or protected species um, and back to their hotel rooms to boil in their kettles. So it was a, <clears throat> yeah, it was a really, it was a very difficult, you know, sort of transition. And the leadership in Palau at that time had noticed what was going on, of course, and had seen, you know, this sort of destructive, careless behaviour. And um, so the president and his government had started to uh, put into process a ban of the of the charter flights. And, and when I arrived and I saw this behaviour, I as a visitor felt personally responsible for what these other visitors were doing. So coming from a communications background, um, and my husband was there working with the Australian government in enforcement, um, helping Palau enforce its uh, National Marine Sanctuary. I felt that something needed to be done to communicate with visitors like myself, to inform them about Palau's laws and culture, to make them understand and aware of why it was so important for us to protect it, just like Palauans do. And so I met with a group of fantastic women, so as myself and Nicole Fagan, Jennifer Coskling Gibbons, and Nane Singio. And we all have marketing backgrounds at a very high level. So we all happened to be living on the island at the time. And we discussed, you know, how, how can we communicate with visitors coming in um, to create a sense of um, empowerment for the visitor, but also a sense of responsibility for the, for the visitor coming in. And we wrote a strategy and then we said, okay, let's find a creative partner. We need, a, we need an agency to help us bring this to life. And I was lucky enough to have worked with some very talented people over at Host of Us in Sydney. And they were the first people I called. I called them up and I said, hey, you know, I've got this incredible group of women. Um, we've got a whole country to save. We've got zero dollars. 
do you want to help us? And they said yes. I mean, it was quite phenomenal how they said yes, but they did say yes. And um, we're truly grateful that they did because it's evolved into the campaign that is now widely known, I think, in our industry around the world. How much were you actually able to embrace the idea from being a true purpose-driven approach as opposed to just a PR stunt? Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, it was never designed as a as a PR stunt. I mean, you know, to actually enact the Palau Pledge, we had to change law. <laughs> we had to change the law of the land, you know, an entire country's immigration law needed to be um, updated and changed. So this was all, all always about systemic change. It was all about huge change, you know, um, and we had to do that. And it is a system, you know, we had to change a system. And of course, Palau is an extraordinarily brave, forward-thinking country, hence um, the conservation initiatives that I've mentioned previously. They were world firsts. So they're, they're very adept at embracing new ideas. Um, but from when we started planning the campaign, January 2016, we launched in December 2017. That was two whole years of um, consultation with the uh, community from every level. So traditional leadership in Palau is very strong, consulted the Council of Chiefs and their female counterparts. We consulted, I think, every elected leader and and then at the grassroots level, you know, community leaders, the conservation community locally and internationally. You know, there was a huge consultation process that went on. Um, there was a big sort of uh, legal consultation that had to go in the background to make sure that something like Pledge was legal. This is the first time, you know, in my life anyway, that I've ever signed my passport. We had to make sure that the passport stamp itself, the jurisdiction of the passport stamp in someone's passport was actually the domain of that country. And so it was legal to get someone to sign a document that has been issued by a different country. So that was a huge process that we went through. So the consultation and the refinement of the idea, you know, and setting everything up so that it could be seamlessly integrated into the immigration process took took two years, you know, um, and it was it was a huge it was a huge undertaking. And from that point on, I mean, I just want to say at this point, you know, we were four individuals and, and the first lady, so five, and we, you know, we were we were doing this project pro bono as were host of us um, and we moved mountains but but even we say now like if we'd had the budgets available at the time we could have done more now what we're doing is we're embedding the Palau pledge into the private sector and into um, the education system so ideally you would have done all of that at once but we are now doing the the work of institutionalizing the Palau Pledge, let's say, into the community um, and into the wider world, actually. Um, and so, you know, if you think about the kind of work that goes into a PR stunt, and I, PR is my background, so, you know, I know that, you know, with the best will in the world, a PR stunt, you know, takes a max a few months to pull off. This is, yeah, this is a huge um, institutionalized uh, campaign uh, project initiative that is uh, really embedded into every aspect of, uh, of Palau. The Palau Pledge is one of the most awarded campaigns of all time in terms of creativity. What did the campaign achieve in terms of the task it was supposed to tackle? And was it always successful? I mean, <clears throat> coming from client-side brand, you know, 
if you get a hundred percent penetration of market with your with your message i mean you can't ask for more than that really can you and it does have you know a hundred percent um message penetration and and compliance so a hundred percent of visitors and you know locals coming into palau have to sign the pledge it's in six languages and it's printed in every passport on entry in the visitor's language or the nearest one so there's no i didn't understand you know um there's there's no excuses for not keeping the pledge and it's written by the children of palau in collaboration with the children of palau so again it's part of a suite of materials the pledge itself the passport stamp itself is the jewel in the crown but it's part of a suite of materials you've got the in-flight video which is shown on every um passenger aircraft coming into Palau, which is a beautiful story um, based on a Palau legend that stars the children of Palau. Um, and you have to sign your customs form where you have to say that you understand that you're going to sign a pledge and what that actually means. Then you sign it in your passport, you get a little passport insert, uh, basically with the do's and don'ts, again, all in your own language. And then there's signage. Um, throughout the airport and soon throughout the country in different languages, reminding people at different touch points how they can keep the pledge. So, you know, if you're looking at it again from a success point of view, I'd be pretty happy with that if I was a, you know, brand director client side to have, yeah, 100% of my market <laughs> tied up. So, in the industry, we normally do these types of purpose campaigns for brands but you focused on a country. How could you communicate or represent a country compared to a brand? I recently did a talk on, on brave marketing um, to uh, a group of Australian marketeers. And one of the things that I've learned in the last two years, I've had, I've come into contact with other brave, you know, brand directors, marketing directors at some very large organizations and they're the ones that are doing really brave work I've, i've had a chance to sit down with them and, and talk to them about their process and how they go what they go through and their process is very very similar you know palau is a brand it's it's a destination brand you know it's 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 a destination it's a brand just like any other it needs to be managed in the same way and so when i talk to these other brave marketeers you know they've all said to me that when they do brave work First of all, doing brave work sets you apart, right? You don't want to do everything the same as your sector. So if you're making a toothpaste ad, you don't want to make it look like every other toothpaste ad, but everyone does that because it's safe. It's safe to do that. And with destination marketing, it's the same. People, you know, especially with Pacific Islands, you know, a lot of their uh, campaigns look the same. What is the point of difference? What are you trying to say? You don't want to swim in that sea of sameness. And one of the things all these brave uh, directors have told me is that You know, when they did brave work, when they saw it, they knew it was the right thing to do. And they knew that if they signed it off, there was a likelihood that they would get fired. And it's been extremely effective in the target audience. People want this kind of work, but we need to be brave, you know, and we need to move clients in that direction. And we need to be able to reassure them that by doing the brave work, they are going to stand out and it is actually going to get them the return that they desire. Um, and so it's, you know, you can't really differentiate a brand from Palau because it is one and the same. Um, I was just really lucky. We were really lucky that we had, um, quote unquote, a very brave client um, in the people of Palau. Thank you so much, Laura. It was lovely having you here. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care. Give a fuck. We also talked to the creatives Alex Ausem and Till Oberviv who worked on a campaign for Deutsche Umwelthilfe. The campaign is called For Everlasting Moments. The aim of the campaign was to generate awareness about single-use plastics. Single-use plastics are only used once and only for about 12 minutes in total. However, it takes up to 450 years for these items to decompose and they are doing so by using iconic pictures from actual historical events. The hero image of the campaign, for example, shows a still picture from the 22nd climate conference in Marrakesh and in the copy it says the plastic bottles on the table will last another 446 years. Hashtag make plastic trash history Deutsche Umwelthilfe. So it kind of pokes fun at the fact that at the actual climate conference day, attendees were still drinking water from plastic bottles. So how ironic is that? Here is Alex and Till to tell us more about the story. Hi guys, thank you Hi. so much for coming in. Hi. So I just want to know a little bit about the inspiration behind this campaign. How did it all start? What was the process? It's uh, pretty much, there wasn't like a real inspiration, it was more like that we found an image. So right. we have this, for example, for the Woodstock uh, motive, we have this couple um, kissing or hugging and that's everything you focus on in, on the image. And then on the second glimpse, you see that there is way more on the image, that there is a lot of plastic trash, that there is a lot of stuff that doesn't appear in the moment you see the image. I mean, for example, I have this record at my place and I knew the image for years, but I never saw the plastic trash. And that's what most of the people didn't do. Right, so this campaign is about plastic decomposture. Till, is there something that you are passionate about in your private life? It definitely should be something that we all should be more aware of. And I sometimes see myself in Rewe buying the uh, sushi and realize that a lot of plastic comes with it, which isn't so necessary, I would say. So yes, I try, but sometimes it's, you want to have a Snickers bar and it comes in a package, so you have a Snickers bar, right? Those are all like very little, like snappy decisions that we don't realize that happen, but then the impact of the decision has the ability to like last 500 years in the environment around us. Uh, how was it to work on a campaign that has a purpose as opposed to maybe traditional you know, FMCG advertising that we usually do? Uh, well, you actually already said it, it had a purpose, so it's not just selling the 500th uh, product to people that they actually don't need. So in this, this time it was like, okay, I mean, it's advertising still somehow, but it has a purpose, so it's for a better cause. So you're, adver you're advertising a solution, kind of, and not the problem, because a lot of stuff that we try to sell in ads comes in plastic right so great uh, and have us we all like always say that when we believe that you know the brands have to make this meaningful difference to our lives uh, that is some meaning there the purpose and meaning are kind of intertwined and we always say that the buying a product has become a political act in itself because people don't just buy products or brands that don't have the same values as the people buying them believe in 
I just wanted to ask you in your private life or personal life if you if you recognize this as reality. Do you try to buy products or companies or brands that are somehow, you know, not considered questionable? Or are you looking into what the brands stand for or if, if the if the brand or the product is sustainable? When you go to Reve, you know, and you go and buy your weekly shop, let's say, or clothes. I think the latest example is what happened to Oatly. Yeah, yeah. Because I was trying to stop drinking milk in my coffee and started buying to uh, buy buy the the Oatly um, oat milk, and when it came out that it got new big investors that support Trump, for example, I'm think I was thinking about if it makes sense to like buy Oatly still, mm-hmm. and so I ended up buying Oatly. So I think that's a good example for yeah, that. For sure. So, till why do you think people should give a fuck about? protecting the environment and plastic specifically? Uh, I think because we have this one world and we destroy it by living in it, so we should take care of it at the same time. Right. Enjoy it. Yeah. Well, one of the silver linings of the quarantine and Corona, I suppose, is that this year the Earth Overshoot Day was three weeks later than the year before. So we slow down a little bit. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys, for coming in. We decided to speak to Asana Jensen, a PR professional from Havas Hamburg. She knows the industry in and out, and her specialty is how brands build their purpose. Thank you so much for making time and being able to be interviewed for our podcast. Uh, this interview, uh, this episode, this episode is about purpose. Do you think that? If a brand or a company does a purpose campaign and it's not done right, it can actually harm the issue, the cause that it's trying to defend? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always recommend to whether or not do a purpose campaign if you can't do it like 100% and really mean it. So it's not worth just working on the comms around it. You need to do good and then talk about it. The other way around, it never works. So yeah, we because... always say that we always actually preach that and that's um it's really hard sometimes because of course usually the purpose idea comes from the marketing team i think then then the companies run the risk of appearing really trivial because it's like we, we, we always say this example with pepsi right like that that campaign that was done a few a few years ago with um candle jenner people protesting it was the first wave of, of blm i think and you know it seems like you know the only solution is to drink a can of Pepsi and like quit your modeling job and just go protest with the people. It suddenly appeared so manufactured. And I think that's also what I think pe- people have to beware, not to appear so manufactured, not to appear so so fake. Yeah, you really need to think this through because even if you have good intentions, you can't sometimes um, understand the whole picture because there are many different opinions, many different views. That's why we always say speak to experts about it listen to different voices because there are always um yeah many different opinions about things and you can never please everyone that shouldn't be the goal but you should prepare yourself properly and learn about the fights you want to fight if you understand what i mean like sometimes you want to be the troublemaker and you want to do something really revolutionary and if that's what you want to do of course then go that way but mostly 
brands want to do something nice, something common that doesn't cost too much, but still gives them a really nice image. And then you really need to think it through. I mean, yeah, it really is about um, choosing your battles to fight. Like, don't fight every battle. Choose the one that makes sense and is relevant to you. As If you're a person or a brand, I guess it doesn't really matter. It's the same. You mentioned you had to be prepared, and that's the preparation. And that's something that I'm really interested in because I think in the preparation phase, every brand thinks that we're going to make this campaign, we're going to do this film. It's going to be amazing. People are going to love it. But many times, you know, they get cancelled and this is, opens the whole topic of cancel culture and cancelling. And nowadays I feel it's so, so easy to get cancelled because everybody is hypersensitive. Do you think, are brands prepared enough to be cancelled? Are there, is there any, any uh, mechanic or tool that you suggest your clients prior to running the campaign in order not to get cancelled? You know, what is this, you know, cancellation management? Yeah, um, you definitely can prepare that and many clients don't do it. Um, and they often don't understand why to put the budget in it first, because before there is a crisis, you don't really understand why you should invest money in Q&As, for example, or a proper crisis communication plan. But that always just matters as soon as the crisis is there. And if you then start to prepare these things, you're going to be late and it's too late to really handle the crisis well. So yeah, we always recommend to, to set up Q&As um, in every case and to think of all the positions people might have if you go down that road. Um, so to have different voices, uh, journalist voices, especially because they usually are the ones who who start investing investigating not investing um and then yeah the the crisis communication plan and especially the internal plan so who is the team that will be in charge if something goes wrong who will be able to communicate who is allowed to speak publicly at all and what will be the core messages that we will present them that should all be fixed and settled before you launch the campaign. And you, you also said you also said before that you can't please everybody, which is for sure true. But don't you think that maybe in a way the audiences and people all, all around the world or Western world grew so touchy and so sensitive that do you, do you feel like this has changed in, in the recent years? Mm, I don't know if we really became more sensitive or that there's a ground pressure to communicate or show a certain attitude and position. Like this whole, um, this whole topic of showing affection, of speaking up has been um, pretty present, I would say, in the last three years, especially in the marketing and comms world. And I feel like people are throwing shade at other people that don't have a clear position and a clear mind. So you're kind of forced also to take a side and to speak up. And sometimes people simply don't have things to say or they don't have the knowledge. So um, I think that's something, it's not just about being sensitive, but also being pressured to say something about things that happen in the world. And then also we have so much more platforms than we used to have, like with all the social platforms arising, um, all the, the Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever content, there are so many places where you can speak your mind or where you can comment on stuff by staying anonymous at the same time. You don't have to really speak up and show your face and deal with the consequences also. The only consequence might be that you get, I don't know, blocked, canceled, whatever. But it's not like 
like if we really look at it in a traditional way where you had to go to the streets and fight and maybe had to deal with i don't know police or something that's a whole different aspect so yeah i think it's more about growing pressure of um, speaking up to things in general more platforms more ways to to do so in a much much easier way um, than we had in the past and yeah Well, I think we had a, I think we had a really nice discussion. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. <laughs> there is no doubt that marketing that participates in larger social, political and cultural debate is a trend that is here to stay. It is a very powerful way for businesses to shape their brand and connect with customers on a deeper level. However, let's remember that this conversation is rooted in social media originally. And there, everything is instantaneous. As quickly as you can win somebody's heart over, you can as quickly become heartbroken. Cancel culture has the power to crush your brand within days. Don't take the risk. Customers can smell inauthenticity from miles away and they will hunt you down. And that is it. That was our episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. I want to thank our very own Till and Alex from Havas Dusseldorf. I also want to extend my gratitude to Asana from Havas Hamburg. And last but not least, Laura from the Palau Legacy Project. Please leave us some feedback at giveafuck.net so we can get better. Tell us what you liked, tell us what you didn't like. Maybe you did not like my accent. Well, I can't really change that. That's too bad. Find out more about our host agency Havas Dusseldorf at meaningfulbrands.com. And until next time, keep giving a fuck. Give a fuck.